Welcome back to QAV, episode 515. TK, we're recording this on Tuesday the 19th of April, about half past three in the afternoon. How are you, TK? Yeah, really well, thank you. Very good. That's good. What's news in Sydney? Have a good Easter? Long weekend? Easter was brilliant. Yep, we've had uh, people staying with us and lots of uh, events and social occasions. It's been great. Alex came up, fantastic time. My sister had her kids up and it hasn't been raining. It's been beautiful weather in Sydney. Oh, that's good. Did the Easter bunny bring you something nice? I think I might have got one egg, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> we had an Easter egg hunt on Saturday. That was Alex loves Easter egg hunts, so we're still doing it. She's 23 now? Yeah, 22. 22. <laughs> but that was fun. And uh, I forgot about putting the eggs out on Easter Sunday, so she didn't get hers until lunchtime. That's all right. Well, we spent Easter day in the emergency room because Fox spent the night throwing up all over himself, all over his bed linens about three or four times, and uh, was still throwing up into the morning. So uh, he ended up spending seven hours in the ER, poor guy. They just think it was gastro, but they did a couple of, we did a rat test and then they did a PCR test and both came back negative. But uh, yeah, that was fun. And my big boys are in LA. They've been FaceTiming me uh, a couple of times from LA, finally got there. Hunter's been trying to get there for like, well, since 2020, I think he had a flight booked for, supposed to go in April 2020 the first time, but uh, obviously that didn't happen. So that's good. They're off having their adventures. Yeah, fantastic. How long's Hunter staying for? They're both staying for a month. Ah, okay. So... Let's get into the show. Big news, uh, well, not big news, but uh, sort of been all over the news this week is uh, what's going on with Afterpay <laughs> and the BMPL stocks. There's been a lot of fun. The uh, Some of the tech journalists are having, sorry, the finance journalists saying that Block is definitely in the buy now, pay later space. They're paying <laughs> later for their buy now. A while back, this is, I think, in the financial review the other day. The biggest acquisition in Australian history isn't looking so crash hot. After Block paid $39 billion for it, losses at Afterpay continue to blow out as missed repayments accumulate. In the last six months of 2021, Afterpay lost $345 million, up 65% on the previous half. At the current rate, owning Afterpay will end up costing Block $1.5 billion in 22 alone, 2022 alone. Gives a whole new meaning to the term buy now, pay later, but Afterpay is not alone. As BNPL platforms expand into new markets like the US, they're all spending big. Throw in struggling customers who aren't paying for their purchases. Afterpay's bad debts are growing at 70% and there's a reason the shine has come off the sector. There was also an article in Morningstar I read this morning said losses increased by 336% owing particularly to a jump in marketing expenses, the, the move to the US, I suspect, up 99% from 2020 to 2021. Later on in the Morningstar article, they say, they're quoting some guy called uh, Mr. Lur from, I don't know where he's from, Mr. Lur, maybe Hyperion. They seem to be quoting Hyperion, who own a bit. Yes. Oh, no, Morningstar equity analyst Sean Lur. He remains optimistic about the future for BMPL stocks. <laughs> but um, he highlighted that marketing costs are pivotal with numerous players vying for the attention of customers and investors. Talks about how Zip has played out. 
Rate hikes could spell bad news for the BNPL sector. As interest rates rise, it's essential that BNPL companies generate their own income from activities such as merchant fees and customer late fees to offset the growing cost of borrowing. Lur flagged that rising rates may tempt investors away from growth stocks like Block and Zip and toward value stocks so they may be able to reap cyclical benefits. It could also lead to a reduction in investor funding. He says a reduction in investor funding means these companies may no longer have the capital to simultaneously give discounts, spend on marketing campaigns, pay staff, or use their expensive shares to go on acquisition sprees. Instead, he expects companies to begin cutting costs. According to a report in The Australian, Zip has slashed staff numbers by approximately 20% this quarter in a bid to cut operating costs by roughly $8 million. Sezzle has also slashed its North American workforce this year by 20%. Lur believes the losses reported by Afterpay are only the tip of the iceberg. He expects other companies in the sector will follow suit unless they're able to effectively cut costs in order to service debt. Even if Afterpay, the market leader, is making losses, this just tells you that other players will also be making losses, he says. You know, the thing that this made me think of is, you know, for three years we've been talking about growth stocks and you kept saying, you know, this looks like the dot-com cycle all over to me again and pre-GFC. But it just pointed out to me, it reminded me, reinforced for me that these businesses that blow up and are running on free money, as we've always said, there's a lot of unknowns in their future. What happens when interest rates rise? What happens when Visa and MasterCard or Apple or somebody like that get into the BMPL sector and they have some real competition with people with big market penetration and deep pockets? You know, what happens, what happens, what happens versus more boring businesses that are old-fashioned and just generate cash and you kind of, it's relatively easy to forecast what their future holds for at least the next six to 12 months because, you know, okay, things do change in the iron ore space or in, you know, whatever, whatever space we invest in, but uh, they don't tend to change dramatically. Like the iron ore price goes up and the iron ore price goes down, but it's fairly consistent over time. People keep building stuff, you know, there's no sort of dramatic interventions in these spaces. So anyway, what's, what are your thoughts without any schadenfreude? What are your thoughts on the whole BMPL space at the moment? Yeah, well, a couple of things. I mean, the other thing that I found interesting in the Fin Review during the week too was an analysis which said that I can't remember which BMPL company it was, but they weren't doing any credit checking. And in fact, perhaps it was all the BMPL companies. I don't think they run credit checks before they give people access to funds. It's old-fashioned and boring credit checks, Tony. Come on. Right. So you go out, you get your $2,000, you buy an iPhone. You walk away, you sign up with the next lot, get your 2000 It's all moral hazard, right? There's nothing punitive about not repaying your debt. They won't let you borrow from them again or get access to more BNPL funds, but they don't send the debt collectors after you or, or have a link to the credit scoring bureau, anything like that. So it's becoming a bit of a scam. And if I was a mob boss, if I was Tony Soprano, I'd be, or more of it's a Christopher Moltisanti play, really. I'd be getting some of my underlings to get, you know, a couple of hundred people to uh, sign up, buy some iPhones, whatever, collapse it, give it to me. Yeah, after pay can chase the mob. <laughs> I don't know. 
Well, that's right. But I guess the general point I want to make is that there's only ever three sources of funding for a company, right? It's either debt, it's so the banks are loaning the money, it's profits, so they're making money, as you spoke about before with the iron ore companies, or it's shareholders. And for these BMPL plays, it's always been shareholders. I don't think the bank's lending them money anymore. The banks are quite savvy about risk management and getting their money back when they loan a, a company some funds. So, I mean, Roger Montgomery taught me this 10, 20 years ago. If they ask for funding and they're not making money, they're going to keep asking for funding. And uh, all you're going to do is, is pay them and never get paid back yourself. And we know that it, it paid off, it played out for the Amazons and Ebays and a handful of startup businesses that eventually took 20 years, but they eventually got there and started showing some profit. But again, how do you know which one's going to be standing 20 years from now out of all of these? It's, uh, it's just a really hard game to play. Yeah. And like you just listed two companies out of the 2000 that were on the NASDAQ and <laughs> in the dot-com boom, right? So those odds aren't great. <laughs> And with hindsight, we can say, oh, yeah, but Amazon was always great. But it got down to 10 bucks a share after the dot-com bust. So it wasn't seen as great back then. Yeah, and I remember when Barnes & Noble launched their website in competition with Amazon, and there were other competitors, and no one really knew how it was going to play out, who was going to win in the end, who wasn't. But anyway, good luck to people that uh, did well out of the BMPL stocks and the other growth stocks. But um, yeah, if they played the greater fool and sold their money, sold their stock to somebody else, good on them. And it's, that's a legitimate strategy if you're good at it and know the industry and know the place and all that. But I think what we should do is ring up Jack Dorsey and say, hey, we've got a bridge for you to buy, Jack. <laughs> if, he, if he's going to shell money out for something like Afterpay, <laughs> we'll sell him the opera house. Well, maybe, maybe uh, Elon Musk can come and buy that as well after he buys Twitter. He can come and buy Block. <laughs> He's got a spare $40 billion lying around or whatever it's worth is. What's he, what's he doing? What is he trying to give Trump a platform again? Is that, is that his end game? Mm, could be. <laughs> I mean, who knows what Elon's ever up to, but uh, you, know, you can't take your eyes off him. He's, uh, he's entertaining and he likes shaking stuff up, that's for sure. Yeah, a great promoter. And I saw uh, Warren. Buffett, uh, in, a, in this new interview that um, I watched over the weekend, gave, he says, you know, Elon's a great businessman. I know Elon's had some less than nice words about Warren over the years. <laughs> <laughs> but Warren said, oh, yeah, he's great. Done his best businessman in America, I think he said Elon is. So, Well, I haven't heard that one. Okay. You didn't watch the new Charlie Rose interview? No. Is Tesla actually making money? I haven't noticed it. I mean, it seems like once... One part of the business makes money, it pumps it back into space or batteries or solar or drilling companies or whatever. It never seems to make a profit. I don't know if they're, they're separate businesses. I think they're all separate companies, SpaceX, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't think Tesla's moving money around between them. They're like, they're, I think they're sister companies. I don't think they're, um, that Elon owns. Okay. I think there are some cross holdings like Tesla battery might be owned at least half by Tesla. Oh, well, the battery, the battery. I don't think SpaceX or the flamethrowers or the tunnel diggers are uh, all the same business, but I don't know. I don't follow that closely. What's Warren been smoking? I mean, uh, <laughs> Elon Musk is a fantastic engineer and a fantastic entrepreneur. I'm not sure about being the great businessman, though. Okay. Maybe he didn't say that. <laughs> I <don't know. laughs> no, I, I believe you. Speaking of Warren, he's been on the 
acquisition trail again. He's opened his wallet. I saw that during the week. He spent $22 billion in the last quarter buying US companies and stocks again, which is he hasn't been doing for a long time. So that's a bit of a, a vote of confidence that the US market's becoming fairly priced again. He already had a stake in Occidental Petroleum and he bought more of that. So that's, that's always great when Warren buys an oil company after we've been buying them for the last six months. That's fantastic. Good to give approval there. He bought Allegheny Insurance, which is kind of complementary to the insurance businesses in Berkshire Hathaway. And he bought, I think, 10 or 11% of Hewlett Packard as well. So uh, he's spending again. Yeah. Well, I think he's always been wanting to spend, hasn't he? He just hasn't been able to find anything to buy. It was a great interview with uh, Charlie Rose. By the way, Charlie Rose was still working. Who knew that? I thought he got me too out of existence a year or two ago, but I guess uh, his statute of limitations is up on that. It was a good interview, but Warren, you know, 91 or whatever he is, like just funny, erudite as always, says he still tap toes, uh, tap toes, tiptoes to work, tap dances, sorry, tap dances to work every day, tip, tap, toe. It's one of my favourite games to play. <laughs> he tap dances to work every day at 91, and he said it's it's the people. He said he's, you know, his business partner. He couldn't imagine anyone to, better to work with than Charlie or his staff that have been with him for like 50, 60 years. He's, I think his, he said his assistant started at Berkshire when she was 17 and she's still there. She's like 67 or something. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. Lovely to just so to hear Warren talk about how much he loves doing what he does. And- exactly. I mean, yeah, it's very rewarding. I mean, I, I can speak to the same experience, like when you're investing over the long term and it's, it changes your life and a lot of the troubles in life go away and you do get up looking forward to things for sure. But it's also, it's very telling of how good a boss Warren is that his core staff have spent their whole lives working for him. And no one's left or not many people have left. They love working for him. They come in every day. They do whatever they can for him. I think that's a, a great tick for Warren. It's the, the company culture is you die with your boots on at Berkshire. <laughs> so you're, you're, they're all lifers. It's great. In the news today, Tony, in the Hindustan Times, now one of my favorite reads, I read an article, US natural gas prices at 13-year high as Ukraine war creates global supply crunch. 13-year high, that's that's a pretty big high. Yeah, well, we spoke about this before about, you know, it's kind of sad that we're profiting off the Ukraine war, but it is boosting our, our energy stocks. Uh, it's the same with the oil price. It's back up well over $100 a barrel now as well. So that's going to hold for a while. You know, I put my hand up and say I was wrong. I thought when Russia defaulted on its bonds about uh, five days ago that that would be a real milestone in trying to resolve things or it would try to be resolved before they defaulted, but they've sailed through that and the war goes on. So that's a shame. They defaulted? I think so. I didn't read the article. I skimmed through the paper and saw a headline saying they were defaulting. So that, I mean, who does that hurt really? That hurts their investors, right? Yeah, it hurts Wall Street, whoever was buying their bonds because the bonds have been marked, will be marked that right down. Last I saw they were down to 20 cents in the dollar before the default, so they're probably even lower now. I don't think it was. I don't think it was the foreign minister, but what it was, it was somebody high up in Russia quoted in the media, and it's like about a month ago, saying, uh, "We don't care about your sanctions. You know, we're ready for it. We've put measures into place a long time ago. Sanctions mean nothing. We're just going to blast through your sanctions. It won't matter." Well, there's one school of thought which say sanctions don't work, but they 
do tend to take some time when they do work. And I, the classic case against saying sanctions don't work was South Africa and the sanctions against them, which ended apartheid or helped to end apartheid, but they took a long time to do it. I never thought sanctions would end the war in Ukraine, but it obviously is having a negative impact on the Russian economy. Anyway, stocks of the week, D-U-R and P-R-U. D-U-R is an interesting one. Um, I had to ask you about the chart for this because it only floated a little while ago and it's been coming down ever since. But um, I'm still not still not exactly sure when to call something a falling knife versus something that's turned up. It's turned up a lot since we declared it stock of the week yesterday. Oh, when ex-div on the 12th of April too, paid 10th of May. But yeah, like when you look at this chart, DUR chart, Duratech, by the way, for people playing at home, floated November 2020. Looks like it listed at about 57 cents, shot up to 59, and it's currently trading at 40 came all the way down to 31 late last year, but it's back up to 40. What's your definition of a falling knife these days, TK? Oh, it still hasn't changed. I don't know if I have a scientific definition, but when I look at Duratech, I can clearly see a buy line that's been crossed, and now that the stock's turned upwards again, we can put a sell line in. So I've got a buy and a sell line, and it's above the buy line, so I think it's a turnaround story rather than being a falling knife. So if it's above the buy line, that's what you're looking for? Well, it depends, Cam. That's why it's, it's a bit difficult. So remembering back to stocks like Adairs, ADH, hmm. they had a very old byline. They were still above, but they were they were dropping. So, yeah, I haven't written it into the Bible yet, but I still like the idea of if it's the most recent byline rather than the one that was set following the most recent sell line. So in other words, it's H1 is is and H2 are at the right-hand side of the graph, and it's crossed those, then I think the falling knife is, has got a very good chance of, of ending and we're into a turnaround story, which is what the shape of this graph looks like. It's the classic hockey stick shape where it's been going down and now it's turned up. It's had a couple of attempts at turning up, though, like from May 21, it went up and then it came back down, and then in November 21, it went up and then it came back down. So, you know, my worry is that, okay, it's going back up, but it might come back down. But you think if it's uh, crossing a byline, then it's, it's probably safe. A recent byline, yeah. Well, I don't know about safe. I'm not giving any guarantees, but I think it's time to buy with a reasonable chance of it, of it going up further, yeah. So I think that was a, a micro cap stock and PRU. Uh, good old PRU is our sort of large cap stock. Of the week. This is a crazy chart. It's a great one, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) It's just been going from strength to strength for a good four years, really. Well, I I bought PAU probably about four years ago, maybe three years ago at 50 cents. So it's been a home run for me, a four bagger. You haven't had to sell it in that time? I might have. Like, I actually honestly can't remember. I may have sold it and bought it back, but I've certainly been a, except for maybe a small period, a long term holder of it. Yeah, it looks like it's it's had a couple of significant drops. Like in July 20, it had a bit of a drop there down to March of 21. But um, I don't think it would have ever crossed a sell line because the sell line is really low. Yeah, that's why I think I've had it the whole time. I think the sell price is probably about 48 cents looking at my chart here and the price is currently over two bucks. So that's a corker. Well done on that one. I think I hold it too, but you've had it a lot longer than me. Yeah, it's been a beauty. I'll do a pulled pork on that too, whenever you're ready for it. 
Okay. Well, before we do that, just a poor follow-up date. We've been talking for the last week about whether or not to sell SFC Schaefer which we bought in the portfolio back in August 2019 at $14.50. So that's, uh, what's that, one and a half years? Two, two and a half years. Two and a half years ago, we bought it and must have must probably the longest stock we've held in our portfolio. Yeah, it could be. It's now trading at $20.80 and we sold it today because it has crossed a sell line which is kind of insane. Again, you look at the chart for this and it's had a corker run for the last five years. Five years ago, it was like five bucks, 29. It's now over 20 bucks. You know, rules is rules. Yeah. And if you look at the last six to, was it six months on that chart, it's been going sideways. So that's why the sell line has come about, I think. Yeah, right. Now I did um, send you an email about what to replace it with that you haven't answered yet. We've got ZGL and ASG, I think, are the options. ZGL has got a very low av- you know, average daily trade, but I don't think that really matters for our dummy portfolio, does it? Uh, yeah, it does. So the dummy portfolio is about $32,000 now, I think. So we want to buy something with an ADT of 120th of that times five, so 20% of the ADT. And what's the math on that? I can work it out quickly. Do we, though? Because we're not going to have to – we're not selling it because we're not buying it. Does it. Are we really beholden to those restrictions? It's not going to be a dummy portfolio if we fudge the rules. <laughs> so far to date, we've always applied our own ADT rules, but we've been able to buy small stocks because the portfolio has got a small total value. Well, the amount of money that we got from selling SSC, SFC, I think, was about 1500 bucks. So we need an ADT of five times 1,500? Well, no. So the portfolio is 32,000 at the moment. If I divide that by 20, 1,600, so it's pretty much what we sold SFC for, and times that by five, 8,000 ADT. Well, ZGL, yeah, hold on. I'm just having a look at its ADT. It's $566. <laughs> so, yeah, that's probably too small. <laughs> ASG, Auto Sports. No, that'll be fine. That's big. Which is the fire. Okay, so we're going to replace SFC with ASG. And we bid SFC a fond farewell for now because uh, it's done very well for us over the last two and a half years. And paid some good dividends from memory as well. Yeah, I think so. Very good. But there you go. It's uh, And this, you know, people often ask about taking profits from stocks that do really well. And I guess this is a good example of how we do that. We are taking profits here, but only because it's crossed the sell line. Yeah, I guess a quick word about the sell line for SFC, because we went back and forwards on it at the end of last week. And uh, the Bredelator, I think, is doing the right thing. It's using the L1 low point as 30th of April 2020 and then drawing a sell line from there. When you first raised it with me, I went back and had a look and thought the L- L1 might be back in July 17. But uh, the way that the bread load is coded, and it, it was coded by Brett and myself after a lot of uh, discussions and a bit of research into different types of examples, we decided that the troughs and the peaks should actually be troughs and peaks and not just a low point on the graph. And so 
back in July 17 for SFC, there's no trough there, even though there's the graph is lower, there's no troughs there. The first sort of trough that we're going to use for our sell line is April 2020. And the definition of a trough or a peak for new people is that the price either side of the trough is higher than the trough price. So, and the reverse is true with a peak. The prices either side of it have to be lower for it to be a peak. So that, I mean, I reflected on that when you raised it and I asked Brett what the code was saying and he pointed it out. And I think it's probably one of the benefits of the bread later is these things are coded and written down. And probably, and by, I guess, the, the very nature of having to code it, probably in more detail than, say, the Bible mentions these things as, as well. So it's, it's a benefit, I think, to have, like, once you work out what's, what it's going to be, you can just code it and, and walk away and not have to reinvent the wheel every time a new example comes up necessarily. Yeah. It's like having a good business plan. It's the thing that you go back to. It's written down since set in concrete. can be changed, but... Yeah, we can decide to change it, but yeah, it's good to see what we decided on after we did some research last time. Yeah, and you only want to change it if you know there's sufficient reason to change it. It has to be done carefully and systematically, it's, but um, you have rules that you're going to apply. Just on our portfolio over and above that change with uh, getting rid of, of SFC, for the financial year to date, we're, we're slightly above couple of points above uh, the SPDR200, according to Nevexa, it's running at about 9%. We're at about 10.5% for the financial year. And again, you know, my theory on this is that we had a corker financial year, previous financial year. I think we did about the ASX200 had a good year. It was like 23% for the financial year, but we did about 45 or 46, according to Nevexa. So we were way ahead, but then we started, and a lot of those were in iron ore stocks, and then we started this financial year, and in August, late July and through August, we sold our iron ore stocks as the iron ore price came down. So we started from a high base, everything dropped, and we've been rebuilding since we had to dump all of our iron ore stocks. But still, we're above, and of course, uh, since inception, which is about two and a half years, I think we're about three times the ASX 200. So all in all, it's going well. In the last seven days, I have, looking at the chart, performance, FEX is up (laughs) 17.5% in the last seven days. GRR is up about 10% and CCV is up about 9% in the last seven days. So they've been the big winners in the last seven days. One other thing I wanted to talk about, the, the weekly Zoom calls that I've been doing, First week, we had about 20 people turn up, which was great. Second week, we had about five. Third week, last week, we had one, and that was your brother-in-law, Walt. And he said, I didn't have any questions. I was just coming to see what was going on. So I'm not going to do the Zoom call at 7 o'clock every Wednesday night if people don't want it. So I'm going to take a break and pause those for a while, and let's figure out. I do want to make myself available, particularly for new people, to do uh, Q&As and uh, for anyone else too. But we need to find a time that works for people and there has to be obviously interest. I don't want to be sitting here on a Wednesday night with my gun in my hand. <laughs> Just trying to paraphrase Sonny Corleone there, but uh, keep it clean. That's it from me. What have you got for news this week, TK? Not much more than what we've spoken about. A couple of things I noticed, the yield curve, has righted itself. So 
two weeks ago, I spoke about the yield curve inverting in the States. I don't think it ever did in Australia. And that was important, of course, because analysts were saying, oh, well, it always precursors a recession. Uh, but now the long dated bonds are back higher than the short dated bonds. So the inversions reversed itself again. All that sort of doom and glooms gone away from the financial press as soon as that started to happen. So that was of interest, but um, a fleeting inversion of the yield curve. Uh, I just wanted to highlight a mistake I heard when I listened to our podcast recording last week. I said something like uh, that rising interest rates will be a headwind for banks, and I should have said tailwind, so I misspoke. I think my point was clear from the, the rest of the context of discussing the banks we talked about last week, but they profits should get a, a tailwind from rising interest rates. If I said headwind, I apologise. I did say headwind, I think, but um, it meant to be tailwind. So break that down for me. Rising interest rates, basically just good for banks. That's what you're trying to say. Yeah, pretty much. They give the banks profit a tailwind, a boost. Now, I think I went through those points last week, but uh, if I can recall them, the banks will be quick to pass on interest rate rises when they can be slow to pass on interest rate decreases. And uh, also too, just like with the mining companies, when the underlying commodity goes up, the percentage margin might stay the same. In fact, it usually improves with the banks because they don't have to put any more money into costs. There's same number of branches are open, the same IT systems are there, but they get a bigger spread on their both their dollars and their margins. All right. Well, thanks for clarifying that. You want to talk about PRU in more detail, do a pull pork? Yeah, I'm quite surprised I haven't talked about it yet already, but um, it's certainly been a part of my portfolio for a number of years now. A little while ago, I did a pulled pork on West African resources and PRU, Perseus Mining, is another West African gold miner. So again, we sort of start to see themes in the portfolio and on the buy list, but we don't set out to buy West African gold mines. They just come onto the portfolio on a case-by-case basis. And after a while, we, we see that there is a couple of stocks in our portfolio that fit that profile. The first question that always gets asked when we talk about overseas gold miners or any sort of overseas-based company is sovereign risk. And is this a risky asset? And my classic answer to that is if every stock I owned was a West African gold miner, I might you know, be a little bit concerned about sovereign risk. But if I only own one or two and there is a problem, well, the portfolio can withstand it. The flip side to sovereign risk in this case, of course, is that these stocks are value stocks because a lot of fund managers don't want to take on the sovereign risk of... Uh... Well, that's the end of the free episode of QAV 515. If you're new to the show, we do a free episode and a premium episode each week or a club episode. The club episode goes for about usually another half an hour to an hour where Tony answers more questions from our QAV club members. If you want to check out QAV club, uh, you don't only get the full length episodes, but you get access to Tony's checklist and the uh, getting started guide to using the checklist and Zoom calls and videos and uh, dinners around the country that we do uh, when we can. Uh, just go up to our website, uh, qavpodcast.com.au, sign up for the free two-week trial where you get to check all that stuff out and see if it's right for you. If you're one of those people that uh, would like to do more investing but just don't feel like you have the time to do it yourself and learn Tony's methodology, check out QAV Lite. This is a new service that we launched a couple of months ago where every uh, Monday we send out to the subscribers of QAV Lite 
two stock picks that Tony's made for the week based on his uh, checklist analysis. And um, we will tell you what to buy. And then when they breach one of our selling conditions, we put those in a monitoring portfolio. When it's time to sell them, we'll email our subscribers and tell them that we're selling them out of our portfolio and what we're replacing them with. So if you're interested in something like that, all you need to do is buy the stocks. You don't need to do any analysis. Uh, go to qavpodcast.com.au slash light, L-I-G-H-T. If you have any questions, you can email me, info at q- qavpodcast.com.au and uh, yeah otherwise you can just keep listening to the free episodes every week no harm in that join our Facebook group uh, and keep up to date with what's going on get on get on our free newsletter on our website as well so you get updates for other products and services that we're coming out to help you with your investing that's all good luck stay safe and uh, good luck with your investing The QAV podcast is a production of Spacecraft Publishing Proprietary Limited, authorised representative of AFSL 520442, AFS representative number 00129271818. Please don't make any investment decisions based solely on listening to this podcast. This is presented as general advice only, not personal financial advice. We don't know your personal financial circumstances. Please see a financial planner before making any investing decisions.